Hi, I'm James. And I'm Drew. And welcome to Graphic Support Group, a mindful podcast for the design industry and the self, where empathy and the creative cloud meet. Join us as we delve into the mind and soul of graphic design, from PSDs to PTSD. This is Graphic Support Group. everyone we're back here for another installment of graphic support group uh it's james um i'm here solo today drew has had some personal obligations but uh we're super excited to have nikki Jewin here um she's a designer and educator based in rhode island and has been um had a very diverse career in terms of uh research design practice also personal artworks and activism, and she's a super educator holding positions at Roger Williams University and also Vermont College of Fine Arts, where she's been heavily involved in their um, graphic design MFA program. So we're super excited to have you here. And I'm, again, I'm really happy to connect with you, even though we've kind of known each other through uh, mutual friends for years, but um, as you were saying earlier in our pre kind of conver- conversation, um, you feel like no one really knows what it is that you do um, and that sort of imposter syndrome. Um, yeah. And so I've heard a little bit about your work and your practice, but also I think this will be a great time to get to know better about that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that bio? And it was very brief, but. It was very lovely. Thank you. It's always, um, it's always like an, uh, your eyes get wider when you hear someone talking about you. you like you almost don't believe what you're hearing at first. You're like, oh, that person sounds so incredible. And you're like, oh, he's talking about me. So that's that sort of like, you know, you just, uh, for me, it's doing the work, but not really knowing how it affects what's happening in the rest of the world. And, and maybe that's also part of uh, inhabiting the space of a teacher where you are performing you know having a performative relationship with design pedagogy and you know kind of trying to invite people in and you just don't know what's sticking you know so you're just kind of always playing in that space but uh no I think the only the only thing I'll add is that I my life is um rounded out by being a mother and being a partner and running a design studio for the last 21 years which is now um uh, because of my academic career has has shifted mostly to my partner and I just I pop in for projects here and there. Um, but being an active part of my community, my family, um, my adult children's lives, that, that's also a really active and um, bold part of my the work that I do. Like I do the work with with those folks in mind. And um, that's part of what also keeps me really supported as I do the work that I do, too, because I have like a pit crew. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Well, actually, on that note, uh, we don't usually go into biography that much, but I know mm-hmm. that you had gone to RISD undergrad, and yeah. you've actually been around the Rhode Island design community for a while, right? But where are you originally right. from? And like, yeah. I, I mentioned this because community seems to be a big part of what you do. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> as much as I split apart from the community where I grew up, but yes, it is. And I think that's just kind of growing up into noticing that you don't have to go very far to find maybe what you're searching for in a lot of ways, you know, like the grass is always greener kind of idea. But I grew up in uh, Northern Westchester, New York. Okay. And I applied to one college and I knew nothing about it. And it was RISD. It became this like Mecca for me before I even knew what that meant. I really had, I had a, I, I was able and privileged to be at a high school, public high school that had a really great art program, a really great design program, even in the you know 80s, that's kind of unheard of. And meaning we had like one two-dimensional design class, but that's really where I remember thinking, oh, this is design. This makes so much sense. This is incredible. And it was just a moment that I'll never forget. Um, but I graduated from high school there. There were actually seven of us got accepted from my high school, very small high school yeah. to go to RISD. That's how strong the program was. Um, and five of us ended up going to, I think we're and in the end waitlisted, but um, five of us from my high school went, go, went and that's, you know, we had been together since second, third, you know, middle school grades. So it was, 
it was pretty rad to be there with people that you were familiar with. Um, and then, yes, after I graduated and after my partner graduated, he also graduated RISD graphic design in 1991. After that, um, we stayed in Providence. You know, I think we had this this thought. I certainly had this thought that I'd be this art director in New York City and, you know, yeah. like, yeah. Whoosh, whoosh, I, yeah. you know, and then my I fell in love and my life took a, a different turn and um and we opted uh young to have children because we wanted to have a family and mm-hmm. I think we sort of did it in reverse from some of the professionals that I know now and um yeah I mean it's not wasn't without great struggles in many different ways but it there's it, there is no regret that's for sure that I know that I can see clearly but yeah it's not easy raising a family on two artist design teaching careers yeah that's really beautiful um also, I mean, like some of our listeners might be kind of uh, aware of the Providence design, like lineage or the art scene there. But it seems like you kind of took root there when things were starting to build and really have like deep sort of connections to how it is now, which is like, I would say it's it's pretty like it's a pretty healthy design community there that's like growing outside of the anchor that is RISD and Brown. Um, yes, I think when I came out, I, the only thing I saw because of my training was that sort of narrow vision of what design and art education or what design and art practices could be because it was where I came from in my education. That's without, without criticism. It was one flavor and that's what I saw. But now as I look back, I do see, um, all of the different sort of springs and facets of design practice, art practice that have popped up in the city. And of course, because they're my familiars, a lot of that came out of relationship to RISD. I mean, that is one of the most extraordinary um, aspects of RISD, the people you meet, people you study with, people, the cultures and um, relationships and heritages that you're exposed to, especially if you come from, you know, New England, like myself in my most recent origin, I'm also a, a citizen of Austria, but it, it's incredible to see people from different content, continents doing what they did. And when I was there, there were a lot of South Americans and Central Americans and oh, wow. um, Caribbean people from Caribbean nations. So, yeah. you know, I got to see sort of that aspect of art and design, which was right. my people. Those were my people. There was something about the color and the flair and the life living and the socialization that right. echoed with me. And that became, you know, my sort of larger community uh, in the area before we all disbanded. But now... Providence was like, look at it now. And when we graduated, it has like grown gentrified, of course, but it's grown and it's um, in lots of different ways. There's like, there's many different, like I said, springs and facets of what design is in Providence and art is in Providence. And that's kind of what I love. I was just thinking about it as, as I was walking the dogs the other day. And I've taught, I started teaching at CCRI, Community College of Rhode Island. I was from there, I was picked up to teach at RISD. I taught at RISD for 20 something years. And then now I'm at the other side of the bay at Roger Williams University. And so the only thing that's left to me now is the, you know, the incredible universities in the Newport area. If I go like all the way around (laughs) the bay in Rhode Island. But what's nice about that is you see and experience all these different communities and how design affects them, how design is relevant to them, what the potential is in teaching in those ways. And know it's made me a better person, not just a better teacher, but a better person, because I recall getting to my second institution and wishing that all the people I was teaching with had taught for a month at CCRI to know what it's like to make design relevant for a single mother who's deploying to teach in Iraq, uh, deploying to, to fight the war in Iraq in 91. And how do you make that one design class relevant to this person who's about to go overseas and not see her child? Right. Like, whoa. Right. That's a really interesting point that you, you bring up because like Rhode Island is, a you know, the smallest state in the, mm-hmm. in, in the, in the, in, in the union, but it's also in the world, I think. Yeah. It's, <laughs> It's also incredibly like economically diverse and in some ways maybe stratified. Like there's like super high-end institutions like Brown and RISD, yes. but then there's also like CCRI and a community that's very, you know, disenfranchised in some ways. And it has that very classic New England like economic and social stratification, yes. which is, which I think that it's good to hear that you've experienced that and that kind of comes into your own experience as an educator and as a designer. 
Yes, I've been very lucky that way because I think I easily could have been subsumed by what I thought design and art direction and sort of apical expressions of what design education from RISD would be. Mm -hmm. I could easily have gotten absorbed back up into RISD or Brown or, you know, any of the places that I'm, I'm again, privileged to come from and know. Mm-hmm. But I got asked to teach at CCRI. Mm-hmm. And through the terror of teaching for the first time, I right. realized so much more in addition to my education. Right. You know, I, I really, I, I always, I, I have my best friend, one of my best friends still teaches there. She's been an art historian there for 25 years. I think she's wow. just getting ready to retire. And I, you know, she, she has been a great um, support to my career in the different institutions in Rhode Island. But she, you know, I always tell her, I'm like, no, you don't understand. CCRI is like everything to me because of what I learned there and because of what my eyes were opened up to and how students didn't have computers and didn't have simple tools, nor did they have gas to get in their cars to get to class. I mean, it was, it was a very different, um, orientation to, uh, access and education and what that meant. And then, it was my decision to say, I have to learn how to educate better. I have to learn how to do this better. I can't learn this one. I can't teach this one channel that I was taught as great as it is and was, I can't teach this one channel. It's right, right. ineffective and actually probably harmful. Right. Um, I'd like to circle back to your teaching practice, but um, I think we can maybe just start with our sort of recurring key question. Cause we've been like, almost forgetting it in a lot of interviews. Um, but we always like to start with this, or we always like to ask this question for our guests. Um, could you share a lasting experience from your design career that has affected you emotionally or psychologically? Oh my God, James, where do I start? <laughs> Such an unfair question. You should forget about it because there's so many questions to answer. There's so many things to answer there. Um, I, I did, I'm, I'm being a little sarcastic, but it's, you know, sarcasm is right next to pain. So, Mm -hmm. um, I will say that I think I used this analogy recently in another, completely another topic, like a a fish doesn't know the water it's swimming in. It's probably like a beautiful saying that I'm bastardizing in some way, but a Mm -hmm. fish doesn't know that it's swimming in water, right? You Mm -hmm. don't see-through you can't see it you don't know that it's in water until you're out of it right and i think that's part of the the you know the sort of experience i had of my undergraduate education was like i didn't know what i was missing right i didn't know what else there was there because it was it was it was at the time one flavor it was one channel there was some harm included in it there was um there was some difficulty that i saw in in i think in reflection and retrospect and looking back um, but then again, CCRI was a big eye opener. That that was clear that that was a very different space for me to be inhabiting and having some power into, uh, mm-hmm. even when I felt very powerless as a, a young female designer. Um, but I think the thing that came to me first was actually when I was teaching at RISD. I was probably in like my second or third year, okay. fairly certainly an incredibly young designer to be at RISD teaching at that time. Yeah, uh, and I was with a. Um, a room full of young designers, all women. You know, this was one of the, the, this was a class called Form and Communication. We, it was a team talk course. So we rotated mm-hmm. through sections. Mm-hmm. And I remember up until that point, but the people had, who had hired me, I was interviewed and it was really quick and furious. And they were actually quite intimidating intentionally. Like I could, they were using body language that was intentionally intimidating. And, you know, I rise to that occasion. I'm, you know, daughter of the patriarchy and I've learned how to fight it enough, even though it requires, you know, recovery. Right. Um, but I, I learned to fight it to get through the interview and there I was, and I, I don't know what caused me to sort of pause, but I looked out and I was talking about something we were seeing on the walls or something that was happening in the class. And I just realized that, all of these young female designers in front of me didn't know that I was a mother, mm-hmm. didn't know that I had two young children at home at the time, mm-hmm. that I was probably worried that one had a fever or I had to get called out. of. Like there was stuff going on on the right. back burner of my life, but I walked into that classroom and I was the designer right. and I was serious. And I was like, we're going to do this. And I was like, I looked at them and I'm like, honestly, I was like, what the fuck are you doing in my head? I was like, what, what are you, what are you giving them? Like, what are you showing up as and what example are you setting and what, you know, what are you giving um, 
young women in this case uh, to aspire to, you know, to a full life. And why are you hiding it? And I was hiding it because of where I came from and who hired me and the context of the people I was teaching alongside. And it was to be protective because I didn't want to miss a class where they wouldn't hire me back. You know, I was sort of in that sort of intricate uh, space of contingent worker where I had to be protective. And I think that was wise because it probably, you know, aided my longevity in the institution. But I realized that I had a better, I had a, I had to be myself. I had to, I had to let it all flood out. And I did. I did. I started from that point on, it was like switch. And um, I just got very vocal with my students, of course, in the room of the classroom, it was my space and I could, you know, be exactly who I needed to be and would code myself a little bit, code switch a little bit on the outside to sort of play the game at the meetings. Right. That's really interesting to hear, too, because, like, I know as a student at that age, like, you have these sort of figures in your life, like your parents, your sort of teachers and your mentors and your friends. And, like, it's hard to see those people that are sort of molded into the specific roles as people. Mm -hmm, Right. Often, I think in my life, people who have actually presented themselves as people and presented that humility or that, you know, that kind of maybe humility is not the best work, but like um, kind of vulnerability also uh, uh-huh. um, really helps you kind of, I think I remember ha- seeing this transformation in one of my professors too, because she had actually um, gone through a big life change during the time that I was, the three years I was uh-huh. in the design program. But like, uh-huh. you know, she'd say these things that like were crazy uh, and that literally chipped away at that armor and then like years later, I, I really appreciated that because I it helped me like take away the professional knowledge that she was sharing, but also like the life knowledge that like design is a part of you, but it's not everything. And how can you incorporate your personality into your design work and kind of like round yeah. out the the because I think especially at an institution like RISD or other prestigious design institutions, there's a way of like tricking you and you say you mentioned like elements of harm where like to think that there's only one way of doing something that there's one way of being a designer and there's only you can only be this like super professional modernist designer and i think like being exposed to and hearing you sort of make that you know realization early on in your teaching career i think really helps to sort of form like to, to, to show an image of yourself that is real and is human um, in a, in in alongside the authority that you carry as a professor and as an educator. your hands gently in your lap. Breathe in and slowly let go. You have confidence. You have clarity. You have Adobe InDesign. Today you are going to make creative decisions that will bolster your client's value and hopefully yours as well. You've been waiting for a project like this for years. Now is your chance. Shine bright. Upgrade your portfolio. And upgrade yourself. Incorporate elements of care into your teaching practice. You, you used words like reflexive, and you know, like I, I, I don't know from what I've heard of, 
about you, I think that element of sort of caring and nurturing and you know, like um, is a big part of how you dialogue with the students. It is, absolutely. What have you heard about me, James? Um, just like, I think this is dovetailing with my next question. <laughs> but, like, I'm just, I, I think I'm responding to sort of what I know a little bit about the VCFA process being mm -hmm. a very like personal narrative driven kind of uh, system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. It's evolving too, which is like one of the more fascinating aspects of it being like a live entity, which I love. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but to go back to, to notions of personal care in design, I mean, right now is a perfect time to sort of reflect on that as best as I can, because we're still just coming out of whatever it is that we're coming out of, if we are. And I know that other nations are not really coming out of it, but we are you know, receiving vaccines in the States, and we hopefully are aiming to return to some form of uh, normal in-person classes in September. So I do feel like we are moving towards, you know, something that looked like it was before, but we've been through a lot and we're still going through it. And, you know, I've had students, I just in my last two classes, this was my, my lighter semester, and my last two classes, there was uh, two deaths of close familiar family members, a car crash, uh, hospitalization of a parent. Uh, oh my, I can't even talk about some of the other things that went on because I've, I'm not privileged to, but this was one semester amongst 40 students and um, exacerbated by just stress and, and isolation and um, separation from people that you love and care for you and situations that, you know, bring you care and, it's, it puts a lot on teachers to be able to show up and be present for students, especially when you're in a studio classroom, um, right. I think, because it is, you do have more hours together. We have, you know, at RISD, we were used to, I was teaching seven and a half hour studios, and, and now my studios at four hours seem very short, <laughs> but we're together for four hours, you know, a week. Yeah. Um, it's not an insignificant amount of time. And uh, I do know everybody's names in the first couple of weeks, because I think that is a form of care and pronouncing them correctly. We're recognizing their um, different pronouns if they prefer. And I think all of those ways that we, all of those ways that educators can show up um, with presence and deep listening mm -hmm. Uh allows you to sort of, I feel, always move deeper with the content right. is that they, they trust me. There is, I, I, well, they, I don't know if they trust me, but I do my best to establish trust, to right. let them know that this is a classroom where, and, and then of course, all of the documentation in the classroom, the syllabi, the critique booklet, um, anything that I hand out to them, we do um, documents that are about um, um, shared resources Mm -hmm. So that they're sharing what they have and what they can share and they're sharing what they need and they're sharing, you know, interpersonal um, sort of ways that they like to be addressed or talked to or what they might need in terms of not of like physical things, but but um, emotional support or presence or a car ride or haircut, you know, anything. Right. Um, so we spend time in studio classes, you know, that's not around design, but, you know, I, I completely argue that it is, we're designing our lives. We're designing the ways that we relate to one another. And those are, as far as I'm concerned, looking out at the world, those are the, some of the relations or those are some of the design, um, opportunities that really need deep relationship care presence. Uh, so what I think is so interesting, you know, RISD is obviously a, um, an elite art and design institution. Mm -hmm. There is a liberal arts component. I can't say that in my experience there that ever factored in greatly. Of course, it did. Some of the projects the students were doing in those classes did come into the studio classroom. Yeah. Uh, and they were given readings from my perspective, too, of things that we were working on. But at my current institution at Roger Williams, students, I have a finance major who's also a graphic oh, yeah. design minor who is uh, also involved with accounting. I have a biology major who's a graphic design double major who is also a catch another swim. I'm kind of mixing students together, but they there are these incredibly um, a, a, a eclectic interests that they have, and I think this is a really uh, incredible way of um, um, preparing students for what lies beyond college. And I think that moving faster in between those disciplines. Um, is aided by creating environments of trust mm -hmm. and care 
and um, supporting one another, whether it's sharing pencils, if necessary, or skills and how they're done. Um, if students, you know, have a certain skill set, I'll put them together in a breakout room on Zoom because that's what we've been doing the last year. Yeah. But they have, you know, mutual support uh, amongst themselves in the classroom um, because I certainly can't do everything. And so yeah. many of them are so much, so much more skilled at other things. But, but to get to that point where we can move with like, where we can move with like deep sort of relationship to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And why it matters to be mm-hmm. thinking about how you're translating an object into, you know, two-dimensional form or video projection or to do that, we we create environment of care so that they know that they're not just a person in a box on a Zoom screen or that they're just not someone that I'm not going to remember who sat in the back of the room. Just create the beginning of my classes is all about creating those relationships that show that we can show up for each other and that that's valued. That's a really interesting, that's a really nice way of putting it because I think there's a balance in your explanation between sort of wanting to and needing to establish a very personal connection with the students, but also carrying that philosophy through in believing that by establishing that foundation and establishing that trust, it results in better results. Absolutely. That's like everyone's invested, everyone cares for each other, and we can move forward from there rather than like, you know, this sort of cold, distilled perspective of the professional yeah. teaching the student. And, yeah. 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 The students talk about it like a, a constant series of, you know, getting an assignment, doing it, turning it in, getting an assignment, doing it to college mm-hmm. in general, at least the institution right. I'm at now. And what this, what I think the curriculum I'm doing certainly in the, the media uh, intermediary classes is teaching them also uh, ways to think uh, to think and affect what they're doing in their other studios, uh, sorry, in their other classrooms, whether it's a biology room or, or, or whether they're learning to relate to people in a group project mm-hmm. in finance, you know, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, finance in the States could definitely use a little bit of relational design work, you know, right. so that we're making better choices and, you know, and not uh, choosing the capital over the human. But um So it's not like, oh, change the world thing, but it is really about um, hoping to offer tools of awareness and presence where students Mm -hmm. can apply them when they need them. And I love that conversation. Like I really, I didn't realize how much I love that conversation. And that started back at CCRI too. Mm -hmm. You know, that there were people there that I had a chiropractor in my design class. Like that was kind of a fascinating conversation, you know? That's interesting also, like, um, I think that there's what I'm also hearing is that you're sort of, I mean, when you're describing your students at Roger Williams, it made me think mm. of the shock that I went through as an undergrad coming out of the mm. RISD where like, you know, and this actually, it's something like a kind of like a weird point of pride that I carry with me that like, I came from an art school and I came from this community that's like not really understood, but we're really talented. And then like confronting the real world where there's like a total like huge range of different people and i also felt like this real lacking of not having a strong liberal arts background uh, when i entered the world at large and also professionally so it's interesting to hear your experience at roger williams where the students are you know uh, coming from a lot of different um areas and interests and like in that environment it's even more important to have a, a sense of openness with your your attitude towards your education and people um, yeah. being the sort of fruits of, of that kind of relationship building. Um, yeah. I'm curious, I, I guess, like, as I mentioned, like I was wanting to kind of dovetail into the VCFA, but like VCFA must be like a very, there must be analogs for sure, but then you're teaching undergrads at Roger, Roger Williams, but then you're teaching like fully formed adults who have had like long design careers and, asking them from what I understand, like you're asking them quite a lot to, to invest in themselves and invest in their work um, at a point when maybe some people are kind of stuck in their ways. Yeah. I, I think that could be true, except we, from the very beginning, well, we didn't know what to expect, to be honest, when we founded the program a decade ago. Um, but what we found is that, there were a lot of graphic designers coming to us for different reasons and different stages of their lives, 
that had become disillusioned with graphic design and were, you know, were desk jockeys, desk, what are they called? Desk monkeys, like just yeah, sitting yeah. there working on the computer, Quark Express yeah. at that time. <laughs> right, right. They were, you know, they, they were working on programs and um, realizing that they're, they were missing part of the practice that they originally fell in love with. And, and if you've ever taught, I think, and if you've taught an introductory level graphic design class, I think it's really easy to throw yourself back into that feeling you had when you first realized what design principles can do, like when you start to understand them and how much power there is to putting these things together, either on a page or in a billboard or, you know, a, a, something in motion, mm -hmm. that there's a lot of power there. And, and I think um, at, at VCFA, the students are coming, um, I think at some points, because they wanted the paper, right? That's a really, that's a real thing. It's a job yeah. thing, right? It's an economic security thing. You can't get a full-time job in academia anymore without that MFA. And I think this was an easy way to do it. But what I, I think the profound thing was that we're seeing now with the pandemic and with how we've been forced to work because of uh, COVID safety, that designers have always been really good at um, going remote, first of all, but mm -hmm. more importantly, that, you know, there is a connection to the work that is missing that they need to go back to that they wanted to go back to, and that you don't necessarily have to do it in a bricks and mortar institution that that's not the only way to do it is what I really want to say. Right. And that we were learning that um, there was this sort of um, you know, you say you went to RISD for grad school, you picked yourself up, you maybe moved to another country or across the States, you had an apartment, you, in, you know, got deep into the study, you learned a lot, you were around a lot of different people from all over the world, which is fascinating. But then you had to pick up your life, move back to where you wanted to go or find the job and sort of reintegrate. And what was really fascinating about BCFA, and this didn't occur to us because, again, it's the, you know, fish not knowing that it's in a bowl of water. Can't see it, so you don't really know what's happening. Um, students were having these experiences uh, of sort of changing their lives or reorienting their design practices in the places that they were living. They didn't have to sell their homes. They didn't have to, you know, leave their families. They didn't have to leave their jobs it was integrated. It was just learning. And it was, you know, lifelong learning, adult learning. I don't, it, you know, there's all sorts of terminology, but, but what it was, was people reattending to their, what it is, is people reattending to their practices. And I think they thought they were coming to be told more of what graphic design is. And the, you know, those of us uh, teaching the program realized that we're constantly asking what graphic design can be and what graphic design can be in the world that you're in. Uh, in the audiences that you talk to, in the environments and the communities that you're part of, uh, at the institutions that you teach at, because the vast majority of our students are educators, which was also something that happened over time, that we became this this place also for educators or people deeply interested in um, critical relationships to design, to design practices and design education, um, probably because we all love what we do so much is the truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're all really interested in talking about it, even after, you know, the days, the days residency goes by, we're still talking about what it means. And, and every time we get together, we're constantly readdressing how we can be um, more conscientious, more separate from the damages of our own pedagogies that we, you know, we learned within um, and really hold ourselves accountable to healing those things and understanding where they came from and knowing the responsibility we have as educators to stand up there and do it from a way that doesn't create more harm. support now? We love hearing from the design community. Call us at 202-507-9158. Please share your story with us after the tone. We'll do our best to respond on our podcast. Please leave a name or alias, design role, and location. Thank you for your call.
was also curious to hear a little bit more about your activism. Um, mm -hmm. I know you've been involved in projects like Brick by Brick and um, mm -hmm. PDA, just what those, how those, those activities came about and what they mean to you. Yeah, they, oof, I tell you, I think I feel most alive when I'm doing some of those actions. Like it's, yeah. it's, you know, pretty, it's weird to say that when I am on a street corner holding a sign that says Black Lives Matter and a white guy, let's be honest, it's always a middle-aged white guy leaning out the side of his car is like, go suck a bag of dicks out the side of his car with his two kids in the back seat. You know, I mean, it's really hard to describe that that's when I feel most alive sometimes. <laughs> it seems like sort of counter to like my sort of interest in, in healing or the potential for healing but it is one of the ways that I come into alignment with myself I am a bit of a rebel and I definitely cannot tolerate those kinds of harm that could you know that are of ignorance and um and sheer hurt and hatred so uh it came out of it's come out of trauma of course it's come out of survivorship of being um a woman who lives in a body that has survived a significant amount of trauma mm -hmm. and it comes out of uh, wanting to use my voice that I have while I'm on this planet to create safer spaces or to create um, spaces where more people can inhabit the worlds that they're intended to inhabit right. and uh, it comes out of privilege also because I can take up space in these in these ways and I can also um, code switch because I look a certain way and can step into spaces and then also use my voice and assert my power um, and it uh, I guess that the selfishness is too that I like yelling at people <laughs> <laughs> There's a part of me that just, just sometimes the string of swears that comes out of my mouth when I'm on a corner, you know, and someone has said something that deserves it yeah. is always like kind of astounding, you know, because um, so there's I think there's a little bit of pleasure in there, something about anger or rage that I think comes out of the harms and traumas. But in truth, what is or or in sort of um, in fullness, I'll say, is that working with people who have never used their bodies to step into space in silence and to resist harmful rhetoric against women's bodies with their bodies, with the words of harm literally emblazoned on the suits that they're wearing mm -hmm. in front of the white house inside. I just got the chills inside of Trump tower. When, you know, we were standing there a wall of 14 people uh, again, in front of the white house, which was probably over 75 people lined up people who have never actually used their bodies um, so to create and design the systems, to create and design the forms of relationship and communication that create these webs of people that are organized into standing together and resistance across the country, you know, synchronously uh, um, in different places, everywhere from L.A. to Vermont when we did the wall um, in 2017, mm -hmm. to create those systems and to see people having these experiences. Because then as a designer, you step back and watch what's happening and yeah. then you see that there's, there is the power of design, of relational design, of communication design, of ways that you can take an idea or a feeling or an experience of all of that. That's personal, mm -hmm. right? My experience in those places, spaces is personal. But to be able to transmit it um, um, with my partners, with PDA, with Brick by Brick, in ways that other people are having these incredibly powerful experiences, uh, it's an amplifier and it's a community builder and it's it's indelible, like you can't change it. It just happens. You almost can't put it into words. It's one of those kinds of experiences. Um, and so Brick by Brick was actually founded by Sarah Sandman and uh, Andrea Lauer. And Sarah Sandman is a RISD graduate. She went to the MFA program at RISD. Uh, she was one of my first graduate students and like the very first group of graduate students that I taught there. Um, and we, uh, she and her partner, Melissa Small, did the first joint thesis, jointly authored thesis at RISD in graphic design. Yeah. And it was the two of them. It was incredible. And I advocated for, you know, the sort of space for two people to write a, a joint thesis. And it was approved. And it's still one of the greatest joys of my, my um, educating career, that that kind of breaking of a rule or that kind of like boundary um, like dissolving was a great way to produce an incredible piece of work that it doesn't have to be a person painfully toiling away by themselves to create right. a great piece of work. It's 
community written. It's, it was about communication. It was about one plus one equaling three. Right. And so why wouldn't they do it together? That's brilliant. It's co-supportive. It's mutually supportive. It's so I think the work is about that is the work is about creating community. You know, even if it's a community of two people, two minds and a graduate program or a wall of a hundred people, able bodies that can stand in front of the white house and just use their body as a form of resistance. So just to describe the brick by brick project to our listeners from mm-hmm. what I've seen is it is a sort of designed form of standing protest where, as you described, uh, your allies are standing literally um, next to each other. But I think one thing that is distinct is that there are the usual picket signs, but then there you guys are all dressed in these um, uh, jumpsuits that have like a very strong graphic brick motif. Yes. Uh, and when I first saw that, like I think on Instagram or somewhere, uh, what's interesting is that there's a very strong general big image, right? Kind of like a poster where it's like there's the, the image that strikes you from afar. And then, then when you get closer, there's a very specific message, which I think like responded to the setting and the act of protest in a very smart way. And it's interesting also to hear you apply those terms like design systems and visual communication to that act, which, you know, I, I've heard like this is kind of lame, but like I've also heard from designers complain about like protests because it's just like so poorly designed, right? And like li- being having an open mind to bring in the possibilities of applying design thinking to that space, I think Break yeah. by Break is a great example. I mean, but what is greater than being in a sea of millions of people all creating their own signs to right. fight fascism? I mean, I just don't understand. I do understand because, you know, I'm nerding out about the distance of the letter forms and that could have been a more, a color with more contrast and perhaps you should have made that with the stronger wood so that it's not bending in the wind. But what, what, what's important in that instance? Like what is actually important? And I think the suits, the suits are actually in a, in a sense, you described them beautifully, by the way, James too. And they're, they're in a sense a time-based medium because you do see them from afar as a large graphic. And, and when we were in D.C. for the first Women's March after the, after the election, we had over 200 suits lined up wow. on the, the ellipse of the White House. It was like the wall kept going. Like I did a one video where we were walking down the wall and it was like person after person after person. And of course, that, that um, alliteration of forms is really powerful. But you see this, this wall and you look at it and you're like, what the hell is going on? They're all standing in silence. And then if you dare, you go closer and then you read it a second time. And now you may be looking at an intimate space on a body and seeing the words dog, seeing the words bimbo, seeing Mm -hmm. the words she's bleeding out of everywhere, Mm -hmm. seeing the word, you know, you're seeing the horrible words that, that he used as rhetoric against women's bodies in the media. And it, it takes on a completely different, echo and then you see again in the setting of of the white house that day you see tears streaming down people's faces because of the terror of what you know the four years they know they're about to endure and what that might mean and that did come to pass so you know am i going to worry about the letter spacing on one of those signs no i'm going to be very proud that someone endeavored to find their you know jiffy puff marker and make a sign and get out there because that's i think the the sort of impression and then when there are forms of activism that you know that take off that amplify because it's accessible to all have yellow umbrellas in hong kong right you can all get them and you can all hold mm-hmm. them up and they can all be a form of protest that work um so like there's some things that catch like the you know for better or for worse it's a complicated form but the the pink pussy hat that came out too right. at the first women's march right it was it's a problematic form we can mm-hmm. agree upon that but it also it was accessible it took off like wildfire people right. did it on mm-hmm. their plane rides or their bus <laughs> rides on the way to dc and they were knitting them for friends and there's something very much about designing for dissent in that way and that you don't want to necessarily talk about the elite forms of design or maybe the modernist forms or even the postmodernist forms of design, but really access what it's doing politically, societally, you know, how it can affect um, visual capital in some way. Um, so I just kind of want to circle back a little bit to 
I mean, it relates to everything that we've talked about, but you mm -hmm. also mentioned that um, you're now in a position because you're a full-time faculty at Roger Williams and yeah. you're in a more of a, you're in a less precarious position as an educator and a designer. Mm -hmm. And given your experience and where you are in your life, I think what I'm curious to hear is that it, I, it sounds like from this conversation that a lot of the topics that you've been talking about in terms of opening up design education spaces, opening up design spaces, open up spaces for people and creating more possibility for relationships have been important mm -hmm. to you from day one. But mm -hmm. I'm curious specifically, like how it, how has that changed sort of like in the recent five years? Like I, I'm, and this is like my sort of FOMO in a way that like I'm here in Korea as a Korean American, but I always feel a little guilty because as soon as I left and the seas of change were happening while I was there in grad school from mm -hmm. like 2014 to 16, but like mm -hmm. that the women's March movement, the me too movement that all like took off and has grown to, to so many different extensions of social change. Mm -hmm. uh, so what does it sort of mean to you specifically as a woman designer and educator who has gone through a lot of those periods where they were much more problematic and now are in a position of power and influence to try and affect that change i think i am very excited that i'm alive to see this happening and that my body is you know well and healthy that i can participate and uh, take up space and use my voice um, because I also feel like there's something pretty, like 68 was when I was born, right? Civil rights era, United States. And I, when I look at what happened in the United States during 68, like I literally have a list going in one of my, my mm -hmm. sketchbooks. Mm -hmm. Pretty rad what happened in 68 right, right, right. if you look at like a picture of it. Um, to, so to turn 50, um, you know, 50 years later and to sort of look at back at where we're at, I think is, is doesn't surprise me. Um, where we're at, but I also feel like what I can't really grasp and what a lot of us, uh, I think, struggle with too is that change doesn't happen when we want it to happen, right? And I think that's what some of our, our uh, very much our forefathers, four, four sisters understood or maybe understood in hindsight from the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. that it doesn't happen in our time frames. It happens decades later. And I think that's very hard for a controlling group of designers to get their brains around, right? <laughs> I think that's part of the problem. It's yeah. like you do one sign and you're like, well, why isn't it done? Why right. isn't right. racism finished? I right. did this perfectly letter space sign. I don't get it. So I, I, you know, I love that about us as a breed, um, but I also, re this is why I consider myself a relational designer, I think over everything. And when, when that terminology came to the forefront, I was like, oh my God, that's what I am. I, I didn't even understand that that's what I was. And I think Andrew Blauvelt and um, I think Peter Billack for actually putting that into, into terms and words for me so I could understand it. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think it just comes what it means is I, I have a better, maybe mature, I don't know, elastic sense of change and how it happens. And I also recognize that any, um, as best as I can to stay sort of in alignment with my values, my core goals, um, whether that's in a classroom, whether that's in a lecture, whether that's in a conversation with someone, um, you know, for a, a webcast, if I can stay with uh, what matters, what I think is possible, then I have to let go of what it happening in my lifetime or it happening in my time frame. You know, like right. I, I just have to stay with the issue because of, first of all, because of the privilege I inhabit, I think it's my duty. Ugh, I don't like that word. It's my responsibility. It's the place I want to be um, for the people around me that don't have just the same access of skin tone. And, um, part of it is like completely not something I'm in control of. I just think it's part of how I was built when I came into the world. Right, right, right. Yeah. Also understanding those privileges as well as limitations, I think is a, is an important sort of what I'm hearing is those important sort of realizations so that you can kind of accept that, you know, change may not happen in the way you see it now, but mm. you know, how it, is accepted and understood in other perspectives that becomes a cyclical process so that that understanding builds and moves forward. And there are always forces that try to push that back. But as soon as that understanding can be established and we can work with that, I think that 
that's a huge sort of understanding that to establish and kind of awareness to establish. I agree because it's, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a privilege. It's a, it's sort of selfish to think that, you know, you're going to make that one sign and stand on a corner for that one weekend and it's going to be done. No disrespect to anybody that does that. I welcome everyone that wants to come stand with us, whether you're there for two minutes. Oh my God. Some of my like people who stop by and drop us off water when we're out working Mm -hmm. or contribute in some way by a kind word or $5 or 50 cents, or, I mean, it's, there are so many ways to contribute, I think is what I'm, I want to, to say, but I think to, to have a large expectation that this one action or this one intention or this one thing is going to do something, I think that's more about us and about you know uh, neoliberalism and what we've been taught in terms of climbing a ladder to the top of our career. And you know, I just think that all just doesn't sit well with me. That's never been how my how I've experienced the world and in, in terms of um, an abundance that you know makes me pay pay rent or you know attend to my family in a whole way. So I, I think it's more, um, it's more in alignment with how it's really going to unfold. If I do the work that I know that I can do and show up with it, whether it's in a classroom or on the street and then allow the students to be having their experience and allow them to come around to the knowledge when they're ready. And especially if I'm challenging them, with something like ambiguity, which is a really hard topic for undergraduates. You know, it's not black or white. It's not here or there. It's not now or later. There's a lot more in between those polarities. And and that can be very hard for young students. So I don't worry that they're not, you know, giving me the right answers at the right time. I ask them just to show up. And I think that that's just a conversation their learning is is going to happen on their time. And I think that's the same thing for change, political change and social change is that I can do what I can do and I'm not going to stop doing it. I think that that is very important, um, at least from my perspective, but that I can't necessarily expect it to do what I want it to do when I want it to do it, because that's really, really not a good place to be for many reasons. Um. I don't want to take up too much of your time. We're almost nearing an hour here, but I wanted to end on sort of one personal question that sort of weirdly popped up this morning when I was thinking about the podcast is like um, sort of the isolation of design practice. And also you and I are both in positions in academia where, you know, I was, of course, for me, uh, like I moved to another country. So there was an additional element of isolation, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm the practice of teaching being quite an isolated experience and sort of how you've like, in some ways you've answered my question by detailing a lot of activities and the way you approach people in the classroom, but also like, you know, I think one of the words that you mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast is like performative. And so what Mm -hmm. I learned was like, I'm spending time with these students, you know, six hours, three hours a week, Mm -hmm. but I'm not, I'm trying and this is something I'm trying to do more of is like be present and be myself but it's still a performative position that I I have to take so like you know you know which is you know analogous probably to like being in an office and being in a design studio where like the work-life separation but it is a different type of relationship than socializing um so I like it sounds a lot to me that those activities of community have helped fulfill some of that isolation, but how do you deal with it? I think, um, I think I felt very isolated and alone for the first seven years that I taught and I really struggled and, uh, hid everything just to not, you know, put myself in the perilous position of not having work, um, or being found out, whatever that means. Uh, and, I think I was actually ready to leave the institution I was at. I was at RISD and I was like, I'm done. I can't right. do this. This is not sustainable. This is not, it's not, I don't feel like I'm being cultivated. I feel like I'm, you know, just hiding and trying to survive and no one's really listening. I mean, administratively or in the departments. Um, and I don't have, you know, I don't have a, I don't have a posse. I didn't have a posse of people. I had some friends, of course, of course, wonderful people there, but just, Uh, it was a struggle and I was ready to leave and and took a little bit of a a sabbatical, like not really a sabbatical, Mm -hmm. but leave in good, you know, good intentions, 
leave with uh, in good standing. Yeah. And that was when Matt, Matthew Monk asked me to be one of the founding faculty members of Vermont College of Fine Arts. And, you know, how often do you get in your young academic career pre-MFA uh, to start a design program? I'm like, okay, this is really weird. This is either going to be great or a total, you know, explosion. Um, but through that program, I found my like-minded individuals, my merry band of collaborators from across the globe and time zones and institutions. And, you know, when you, you find your people, um, however that happens, you just, my, my back went up straighter. People were listening to me. I was heard. I was listening to people. We were like um, cultivating one another's thoughts. We were stimulating one another. We were challenging each other. We were critical of each other's practices. We were calling into question all of the things that that we were all struggling with and seeing each other presently in that. And um, I think once I found that, I was able literally to go back to RISD and to have it be that practice that I was missing, that I didn't know how to amplify, that I was struggling to find, that I didn't know if it was valid or real design teaching. And mm-hmm. um, but in the you know company of um, these these incredible people um, that are now the faculty and admin at, at Vermont College of Fine Arts Graphic Design, I was able to re to re-enter RISD's orbit and actually really thrive there too until yeah. I was ready to leave for Roger Williams and and really thrive, like really thrive. Yeah. So I think it I mean, I don't know what there's not like a solution, but it was finding my posse, you know, yeah. and then being super challenged by them and challenging them back. That's and, super I'm, I mean, I've always been kind of envious of BCFA's faculty <laughs> community and also this, the institution itself, because like from the outside oh. and also having been there kind of witnessing it a little bit, like the, the, the strength of that community and the love and warmth and also the criticality and like the support that's there is amazing considering how remote everything is. And just like, yeah. you know, I think that like just shows that like, even though you meet twice a year for the residencies, you guys are present in each other's lives, like yeah. throughout, and that connection continues to thrive. And I've, and I've also like candidly also heard where things go bad when in that situation and yeah. being tough, but you know, yeah. I think now 10 years out, like it's a testament to how strong that bond really is because, yeah. you know, people have recovered from that as well. So. Yeah. We can't get rid of faculty at BCFA. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean that in the best way. It's like, you know, I've now been uh, co-chair for three years. I'm going on my third year now as co-chair. And we we have, obviously, with different things going on economically, we have a student body that swells and shrinks as, you know, things are going on in the world. And sometimes we need less faculty. Sometimes we need more. We can't get rid of them. (laughs) So, which means we're always all there on board to, you know, create the residencies together, which is pretty cool because you always have, students are always coming back to this rich group of educators. And then we obviously have the visiting designers coming in and sharing their thoughts and, um, and incredible guests like yourself who come in and share their practices and their thoughts. And like, we couldn't, we know that even the 10, 11 of us now, we couldn't, we couldn't do it alone. Like it has to be this, this like, you know, lovely tossed salad of things that are happening each time and, and changing us. And we, I think if we've done anything well, we've learned to sort of like, you know, move like a roller coaster, but without knowing what the track is in front of us, we just kind of, we trust each other, we respect each other and we roll. And when we're challenged, we try to work it out. Yeah, it's great. I'm, I'm really, I remember the day that I saw you in Noble and I walked in like, doing here (laughs) it was like like two worlds colliding because i remember you from RISD, and there you were in vermont college well thank you so much for making time it's been a really enriching conversation for me personally and i've like you know come to some very helpful realizations actually um Mm. But one thing that we like to do is come up with a mantra for each episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm struggling to find hmm. one. But oh, goodness, how about how about no FOMO? No FOMO. <laughs> <laughs> no FOMO. Oh, maybe this one. No FOMO. Take action. 
No FOMO, take action. Yeah. That's right. And again, whether it's in the form of a podcast or mm -hmm. a conversation or a virtual visit, I think they're all, there's so many incredibly effective ways to have no FOMO. Yeah. Well, thank you again. It's been lovely. Um, I guess I'm recording right now. Okay.